All right, everybody, welcome to our second episode of After the Breach podcast. We're your hosts, Jeff Friedman, Sarah Shimazu, and we're excited to welcome our first guest to the show, founder and director of the Orca Behavior Institute, Monica Whelan Shields. Uh, we're going to start with chatting about the different ecotypes of killer whales we see most frequently here in the Salish Sea, and then move on to talking to Monica about her research. Uh, we hope you enjoy it and can't wait to bring you even more whale-filled episodes from here on out. You guys ready to get started? Ready? Yeah, let's what? do it. All right. Well, um, after our first episode, I was kind of thinking about, we didn't really introduce the two different types of killer whales that we see most frequently here um, in this, in and around the San Juan Islands and in, in the BC waters too. Uh, and I thought Monica would be the first perfect person to talk about those with. So um, yeah, Monica, you want to kind of give a, a basic overview of the two types of killer whales we see here in the Salish Sea? Sure. So people are probably most familiar with the fish-eating southern resident killer whales that for many decades were the whales that were most commonly seen here. And those are the whales that are listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act and are made up of J-pod, K-pod, and L-pod. So when we refer to whales like J-16 and J-26 or K-21, those are all southern resident killer whales. Then the second type of uh, orca that we get in the area are the Biggs killer whales, which were uh, formerly commonly known as transient killer whales. And these are the marine mammal eaters. So they're here to forage on the harbor seals, stellar sea lions, uh, harbor and dolls porpoise. And while they used to be more infrequently encountered, they've really, you know, their, their abundance here has dramatically increased in recent years. And so we've really had this sort of ongoing saga of these two populations unfolding here where uh, we have a struggling southern resident population and then this uh, thriving, growing Biggs killer whale population. Yeah, and I know that you, you and I were kind of out on San Juan Island, you know, in the, the 90s and early 2000s when we were first kind of getting our intro to these whales and I at least recall seeing the southern residents on an almost daily basis in the summer um, when I was out here and never seeing the Biggs killer whales or transient killer whales uh, as we knew them at the time uh, and and that's flipped so much and and I think we've noticed that too with with our trips out Jeff you've you've probably came in kind of later Later in that, like you were seeing more transients and big killer whales than... Um... Yeah, when we we talked about this on, on episode one a little bit. Um, my, it, I'd love to hear more of your perspective, Monica, because I came out here and caught the very, very end of the, the reign of the southern resident killer whales in, in these waters. And uh, I think I've seen three superpods where JKs and Ls get together, in, and I've seen that three of them in eight seasons and both of you were here during the day where you'd see three by the end of May every year. And on the other hand, for me, like the Southern residents, when they do come in on those, those occasions, I don't know those whales nearly uh, like, like you do. Um, But having been here for the dramatic increase of big killer whales those are the whales that i know those are the whales that i i connect with because those are those are that's who i see that's who i've learned about yeah it's been really interesting to see that shift from people that have come onto the scene a little bit sooner um because like sarah i started coming out here you know 20 years ago and the southern residents were the only whales that i knew and 
we would, you know, come here on a family vacation for two weeks in June. And yeah, we would see three superpods over, over the course of that time period. And the transients were these mystery whales. Like, do people really see them here was kind of what I thought. And it was, you know, I was here for four summers before I ever saw them for the first time. And now, like you said, it's flipped completely where we're encountering them about four times as often as Southern residents in, in our field work. And it's so interesting to have these newer captains and naturalists on scene that know, you know, than as we know them now, the big killer whales uh, so much better and don't recognize who the Southern residents are when they, when they come in, because uh, for me, that's, you know, those are the whales that, that I learned photo ID on. I, I find the, the structure, the dynamic, complex structure, uh, social social structure of the bigs, fascinating, um, and we'll we'll get in into that a bit. But there's been such a dramatic shift between the southern residents and the bigs killer whales in in these waters out here, and um, it's happened in such a short time. What's what's the big factor? What's driven that change? Yeah, we're really lucky in a lot of senses to have these two populations that live in the same geographic area because we can really compare and contrast the two populations there. A lot of things are similar because they're inhabiting the same geographic region. So they're exposed to the same toxins. They're exposed to the same vessel effects, but the big difference is the prey availability that we know Chinook salmon runs coastwide are struggling. And that's why the Southern residents are struggling. And we've had this dramatic increase uh, since the Marine Mammal Protection Act went into place and this recovery of other marine mammal species that the bigs rely on. So the seals, sea lions, and porpoises are at or above historic levels. And so that explains why their population is able to grow and thrive right now. Yeah, it's just been super interesting to see that kind of shift um, over, you know, the past couple of decades, really. And, and as you guys were saying, like having these kind of new generation of captains and naturalists come on, and even people who are just excited about the whales and trying to learn as much as they can and how to ID them, um, like the differences in the physical features. Like I, I know for you and I, when we first started, Monica, and like learning how to identify whales, like the Southern residents each seemed so unique to me. Like their fin shape was so unique. The, um, you know, they have the open saddle patches sometimes or those large fingers on their saddle patches. Whereas like to me, um, back then looking at the Biggs killer whales, they looked very similar to each other. Um, and now it's like, those are the whales that we're, we're looking at the differences at the, you know, the shape of the fin, the closed saddle patches, since they don't really have open saddle patches. Yeah, you know, they if, don't you, at all. if you go through some of these um, historic sighting records, and by historic, I mean 15 years ago, um, people would know that they were seeing transients, but they would say, oh, eight transients. And, you know, unless you had one of the iconic males, you know, T14 or T40 or T63, he, you know, they would be noted, but nobody knew who they were looking at. And, as, you know, it goes to show that it's uh, it's really changed, and it's amazing to me now. You know, we have people that oh, the the T forty sixes are my favorite whales because I've spent so much time with them. Yet the same people, they're like, oh, I've never seen K pod. Right, it's just right. mind blowing. Well, I think like just seeing these two different contrasting populations of killer whales has kind of lent itself to a lot of potential for research and understanding of them. And uh, you started Orca Behavior Institute, so um, tell us a little bit about about OB. Yeah, really these dramatic changes in sightings were some of the initial motivation for starting the Orca Behavior Institute because, 
here we were, you know, people that live in this area that are out there watching these whales all the time. And we're seeing these dramatic shifts in how often the whales are here, the types of behaviors that we are seeing, you know, with fewer superpods or much larger groups of big skiller whales coming together. And especially with the sort of unfolding conservation story happening for the Southern residents, we just felt it was so important to start putting some numbers and data to these trends that we were all seeing that this stuff can really only have a chance to influence policy and recovery actions if it gets out there in the scientific literature. So our first couple of publications were on the declining presence of the Southern residents and the increasing presence of the big killer whales just to document some of these changes in the scientific literature. Can you, can you talk a little bit, uh, cause I've, I've seen some of the graphs that you've put out every year. It, I always feel like there's no way that this year can be a bigger year for the big killer whales. Cause they were here so much last year and there's no way. <laughs> and then, and then that year it's like, this is a record year for bigs. And then next year I'm like, there's no way it can be better than last year. And it's, they're here even more. And there's more, there are more and more calves being born in that population. And it, the the trends that they're setting are just incredible. It is. So 2017 kind of blew the previous records out of the water. We had had a steadily rising increase in the presence of big killer whales, but 2017 was what I sort of thought was going to be, okay, this is a record year. But to put it in perspective, in terms of number of sightings, so number of different groups on different days that we had reported in the area, 2021 doubled 2017. Wow. Wow. That's how fast it's increasing. Wow. That is absolutely incredible. And their numbers are increasing. We talked a little bit on the last episode about how we're seeing uh, big killer whales that we don't normally see in in this area or haven't been here in a long time, or they've, they come in very rarely, but now they're here for three weeks. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too. I know that Monica, you and I talk, um, you know, a lot off off the off the air um how some of these whales that we're so familiar with now you know were kind of rare historically too so like they're not only you know using these waterways but we're seeing them a lot compared to them being seen historically by by researchers that have been in in the field for for decades yeah some of these family groups have been well known here all along right the t18s the t65s these are whales that were common here in the 80s and 90s but these other groups that are coming in more recently it just begs the question how is the word spreading right are they just stumbling into this area and finding out that this is a place they can feast or are some of these other whales that they're encountering elsewhere sort of spreading the word and saying hey you guys need to check out the sailor sea this is the place to be seen if you're a big killer whale <laughs> you gotta go to the sailor sea because you, you want to be seen there that's where all the cool big killer whales hang out it's the inn restaurant it's the inn restaurant <laughs> well uh for sure and we're we're glad to have them really um We've been seeing them this spring. I mean, it's almost every day that we've been seeing them uh, yeah. the last three to four weeks uh, plus yeah. on, our, on our, our tours. And uh, if if you guys, anybody out there wants to come out and have a chance to see some big killer whales, you can come out with Sarah and I uh, with Maya's Legacy Whale Watching. You know, April and May, they've always been kind of the time that the bigs were seen here the most, but what's been really incredible the last couple of years is that that trend's continuing through June and July when these whales used to, we think, go mostly up to Alaska. And then they'd kind of come back here in August, September for sort of the seal pupping season. But really there is no peak season anymore. They're just here almost all the time. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing them all you know, on our winter tours as well. So we, yeah. we see them every, every month of the year. 
and then, uh, you know, no longer true with Southern residents. Yeah, they're, yeah, their presence is kind of, well, definitely shifted. Uh, and the months that they're here more, most frequently have definitely shifted. So, uh, Monica, tell us a little bit more about Orca Behavior Institute, some of the, the current research that you're, you're working on, and, and how people can find, get in touch with you and read, read about uh, your organization a little bit. Yeah, you can uh, find us on social media. You know, we have Facebook and Instagram, um, as well as some YouTube videos. We post some whale acoustics on SoundCloud. Um, at orcabehaviorinstitute.org, you can find our publications. So after we uh, did the sort of sightings and presence changes for both ecotypes, um, we've been doing an ongoing uh, behavioral study, which is a lot of what we do when we're out in the field. And then acoustics was kind of my first introduction to whale research. And so we've been returning to those roots a little bit. Our uh, last publication was on stereotyped whistles in Southern residents. And we're starting to look at big skiller whale acoustics as well, since they're here so often. Awesome. Yeah, no, it was kind of, it was very interesting to hear, um, a little bit about the stereotyped whistles and what you were finding over years on on that. So um, definitely we'll link uh, Orca Behavior Institute, like we'll put all their links in the show notes. Um, and definitely if you have time to read that paper, uh, it's very interesting. So, um, But you have a new study going on. We kind of talked about southern residents, big killer whales eating different things. For us, it's, it's pretty obvious that uh, southern residents are relying on Chinook salmon and that dwindling food source is causing a, a serious decline in their numbers. But there are some other, um, you know, potential factors that people have been focused on uh, for good or ill. But um, y- you're doing a vessel study. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was kind of a, a different track for us. Um, but one thing that is a benefit to being a small organization like we are is that we can pivot really quickly um, to address kind of you know, unique questions that come up that might take several years to go through, you know, government vetting and government funding or whatever it is that we can sort of say, hey, we're interested in this. Let's go out there and, and study it. And that was the case in 2021. Um, looking at uh, vessel behavior around the orcas. Um, so in 2021, as you guys are well aware, there was a new uh, commercial whale watch licensing program in Washington state that went into effect that was limiting um, the days and hours that only commercial whale watching vessels could get within, um, you know, half mile of, of the whales. So, so you guys had to be half mile away for most of the year now. And one of the questions that came up during the licensing process was this potential sentinel effect. So we see you guys on the water, you know, hailing other vessels on the radio or uh, waving whale flags and, um, you know, potentially mitigating, uh, incidents from occurring where especially private vessels might be, um, you know, going too fast or getting too close and you guys can kind of mitigate those impacts. And then, you know, the flip side of that, people were asking about the magnet effect where, you know, are, are whale watchers mitigating vessel impacts by preventing these high risk incidents from occurring or are they attracting more boats to the area and uh, potentially increasing the cumulative vessel impacts around the whales? And so there really wasn't any um, data out there on this topic, despite it being so heavily debated during the, the licensing process. So, we really decided to do a pilot study for one season to look specifically um, at the sentinel effect and the potential impact of whale watching vessels on the behavior of other vessels around the whales. And um, can you, are you able to share preliminary results with that or is there, you know, 
Yeah. Can you share anything about that? Yeah, for sure. So um, just shared uh, some of these results with the Salish Sea Ecosystem Conference, and um, we'll be posting a short YouTube video that will summarize some of this as well. But we have a um, paper that's been submitted and is currently under peer review. And really, the the take-home message is that when commercial whale-watching vessels are present, the number of incidents by private vessels is basically cut in half. And so what that means is when accounting for even education and enforcement vessels, you know, being on scene, the presence of commercial whale watching vessels is reducing how often private vessels get too close or go too fast near killer whales. So having commercial, well-trained commercial whale watching boats out there with whales is a net positive potentially for the whales. It's definitely um, decreasing the number of what we kind of call high risk incidents where, you know, we think the the biggest or potentially most severe impact from small vessels to the whales is when there's getting too close or they're going way too fast. So their acoustic impact is greater. And yes, I think it's safe to say that the presence of commercial whale watching vessels is reducing the number of those incidents. And it's great to have somebody doing uh, some, some research and, and putting some data behind this because and Sarah can probably speak to this as well. But when I'm out there with whales and we're running a trip, it is almost daily and and usually multiple times each trip where we're flagging down uh, recreational vessels. We're calling the ferries. We're calling the the big uh, commercial shipping traffic and letting them know, hey, there are, there are whales in the area. Uh, slow down and 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 be aware of what's going on around you. And we we see what you have in the data. We see that we live this every day. Yeah, and it's it's something that we've seen as well. And you know, uh, some people have criticized us and say, "Well, you went in with a preconceived notion." And well, we did, but it's based on twenty years of observation of you know seeing what goes on out here on a daily basis, where we see what happens when whale watching vessels are there and when they're not. And um, that was the motivation for us to you know put some numbers behind this and we didn't have any guarantee that the statistics and the modeling would come out the way we thought they did. Um, but you know, the, the proof is in, is in the data that it's this trend that we all felt we were observing is, is true. And are you going to continue, uh, the same, same research, uh, this season as well? We are. So really, you know, we were doing a comparison of when, um, commercial whale watching vessels, you know, can be closer to Southern residents and when they can't. And then we were also monitoring, um, around both populations of whales. So the Southern residents and the bigs, and there are some other interesting trends in the data that maybe weren't statistically significant given our sample size of just one season, but we definitely think there's, um, other factors that can be parsed out, um, with a larger data set that may show certain areas where whale watching vessels have the greatest impact or areas where they have less of an impact. Um, also things like time of day, like we were monitoring sentinel actions that we could see. So obviously not the, the radio hails, but when you guys were waving flags and a large proportion of the sentinel actions we observed occurred after 5 PM in the evening, which is when, you know, enforcement in the, the education boats wouldn't be out there. So, so things like that, I think could be really interesting to, to delve into further to sort of show when and where, um, this effect is happening the most. Uh, is there, uh, I'm guessing there's more, you're getting more data uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I would think you're getting more data when uh, commercial whale watch boats are viewing big killer whales, number one, because they're present more, but also because they're we're able to view them at a much closer distance than we are for southern residents most of the time. 
Yeah, it it was. Um, there were definitely more encounters with big killer whales, um, but with southern residents, we were often able to track them for longer periods of time. So really, we had a pretty decent sample size off off both populations, and we didn't see a um, at least you know in our current data set from one season, there wasn't really a significant difference between the two ecotypes. Um, so the effect that we observed occurred with both populations. That's that's really interesting. And I think just to, you know, we talk about what the regulations are now, but not everybody knows. So um, just to put it out there for, for Washington Waters here with the new licensing program, commercial vessels, commercial whale watching vessels um, can watch Biggs killer whales at 200 yards uh, throughout the year, any time of day. Anytime, anywhere. Anytime, anywhere. Um, southern resident killer whales for commercial vessels only. Um we are not allowed to approach within a half a mile, um, basically all year round. And then in July, August, and September, uh, from 10 a.m. to noon and from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Visiting we, hours. Uh, our visiting hours. We're allowed to uh, approach two, up to 300 yards, um, you know, with the exception of groups that have a calf under a year of age um, or a whale that has been designated as vulnerable. So the real clincher to those rules is that the rule for any private recreational vessel is 300 yards from Southern residents year round. 24 hours a day. Right. So you have different rules for private vessels, many of whom don't know how to identify killer whales or how to gauge distance over the water. And then you have professional whale watch operators that are given more restrictive rules. And I just want to be clear, you know, we're not we're not saying that there shouldn't be any rules about distances or speeds around the whales. But what was really kind of the disconnect for us here was limiting just the operators who are the most experienced for operating around the whales and that are modeling the correct behavior in terms of how far away to be and how fast to go. And when you're removing only those operators, that's the effect that we're really concerned about is when you don't have, you know, some professional whale watchers on scene modeling correct behavior. Sometimes you'll have private vessels that don't even know there are whales in the area. And, you know, in September of last year, repeatedly, we saw um, private boats driving right over the whales. And I I don't think it was intentional. I think they just had no clue that there were whales in the area. That's absolutely. When we're out on the water and we see mostly recreational boats speeding up in the path of whales or they're going to go right over them, they don't know they're there. They're not doing anything, quote unquote, wrong. They're not intentionally doing this they're just they're not out there to see whales and they're not looking for whales they're going from one place to the other and they're going at speed and they're they're not paying attention to everything that's going on around them and so then when they see somebody waving a flag then they realize wait what's going on here right and i would say like with that sentinel effect you know we've been um waving the whale flag for over a year now Um, before the licensing rules uh, went into effect. And I would say that definitely it's made it much harder to slow recreational vessels down um, when you're sitting at a half a mile than when you're at 300 yards or 200 yards, depending on on the ecotype. But, um, you know, boats just don't know where you're looking, right, when you're sitting off a half a mile watching whales. Um, And I can wave that flag until my arms fall off, and sometimes I I feel like I am. But um, they they just don't don't see it or don't know when you're half a mile away. And one thing that that we were witnessing that also was a motivation for this study was – we see what happens when there aren't boats on scene. So the the vessels that have been monitoring, you know, private 
boat incidents around the whales have been primarily sound watch and straight watch, but they're monitoring what's happening when sound watch and straight watch are on scene. And in addition to monitoring the scene, you know, they are intercepting boaters as well. They're providing on the water education and that's, that's really important work. But the fact of the matter is they aren't there all the time. Um, you know, they're not out year round. And especially when there's multiple groups of whales in the area, they just can't be everywhere at once. And so we were seeing, you know, what happens when it's just private vessels and just commercial whale watchers and when there's nobody but private vessels on the water and the kind of behaviors that happen. And I think because we were out there at all times of day, we observed both from the water, from our own vessel, we observed from commercial whale watch vessels, and we observed from shore. I think the study captures sort of a different perspective and in some ways maybe a more complete perspective than some of the work that's come before that is you know hugely important but inherently biased because it's happening from the platforms that are affecting private vessel behavior yeah that's a good point because i know that they have published some reports and and studies before soundwatch being one um i think straight watch has as well maybe um but so can you speak to like the difference um I mean, you already kind of spoke to it a little bit, but is there anything else you would mention on the difference between your study and and theirs besides kind of this this bias that we see? Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like your study has a lot of, of unique uh, factors to it that, that the others don't. That was the goal was to, you know, try and capture some of these things that that they're that they, you know, weren't covering in the data up to this point. And um, because there are so many additional factors to look at, that's why, you know, there's the caveat that this was just one season of data. But I think that's why it's worth continuing um, to try and, and look at some of these these trends a little bit closer. And this isn't to take away at all, you know, from the data that they've collected, because they have an incredibly long data set that's been monitoring yeah, yeah. vessel traffic around the whales. That's, that's a really important piece of the picture. But it's uh, like I said, it just inherently misses part of the picture because of the platform that they use to collect data. And so we're hoping we can sort of fill um, that data gap a little bit more. Yeah. And I think more, more people collecting data um, and a variety of data, it really just helps kind of like broaden our, our perspective and understanding, right? So it's not like there's a negative to having another person that's experienced and knows the whales collecting data like this, regardless of the type of study or what you're doing. And, and this is good data to collect as well, because I, I think the whale watching community out here in recent years has embraced more having the responsibility of taking those sentinel actions. Uh, I think that's, that's something that, that has really been widely embraced industry-wide, and so it's a good time to start collecting some of this data. You, we saw you last night um, out on one of your field encounters. We were with the T-137s. Uh, and uh, yeah. just Shut for for, uh, you know, for people out there, just what, what do you do when you're out there on your boat? Like, what does an encounter uh, look like? I've seen you on our boats when, you're, when you've come out with us and you've got a clipboard and I've never really looked at what you're doing. And just curious what, what an encounter looks like. Walk us through that. Yeah, so the main goal of our field research from the beginning has been behavioral data collection, and we've modeled that data collection off of studies that were done um, in the 1970s and 80s to sort of allow for direct comparison over time for potential behavioral budget shifts. So in the field, we're monitoring things like uh, you know, of course, where we are, who we're with, which whales are present, but also the spacing of the whales relative to one another, the speeds at which they're traveling, 
whether they're directional or non-directional in their movements, their orientations relative to one another, and then any surface behaviors, you know, that could be, you know, breaches or spy hops or, um, you know, prey pursuit, especially for the big killer whales. And then we can sort of take those uh, direct observations from the field and later on code those into sort of behavioral categories. So for example, if the whales are all tightly together, flanking one another, moving in a you know, consistent direction at a slow speed, we can go back later and call that resting and put all of those instances into a resting category. And so we're monitoring all these factors and noting when they change to over time build up this data set um, to collect, um, you know, look at behavioral budget and, and those kinds of changes. And then, you know, on top of that, opportunistically, we also drop our hydrophone to get acoustic recordings. And then the, the vessel data collection has added another layer to that. But Primarily, you know, our field work has been motivated by by monitoring the social associations and the behavior of the whales that we're observing. That's really cool. Well, you got a lot last night, and we had prey pursuit, breaching, scaring cormorants, big spy hop from uh, Jack. She wasn't there at that point, but yeah, way to rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> got to see Jeff's photo of the spy hop. We'll um, po- I'll post that in the uh, show notes. <laughs> You know, it's it's amazing because with the southern residents, I find that they tend to change their behavior a lot more often. Like collecting data on the southern residents, we can go through multiple pages in a single encounter. Um, and with the bigs, sometimes it's like a single line of data for the entire encounter. Like they don't change what they're doing, right? They're, they're in a certain mode and that's it. Um, last night was definitely different. They were uh, engaged in quite a few different behaviors. Uh, you just, you never know what you're going to get with the bigs. Yeah, it's it's one of the things I love about them. You never know. um, And when they shift behavior, sometimes they shift behavior on a dime. And and especially if they're going from like searching for food or or slow travel and then they start hunting and it it, it, bam, it's it's National Geographic time. Well, I mean, that was last night, too. So before you got unseen last night, um, you know, the T-137s were pretty spread out. Like we had them. They had made a a hunt kind of as we were getting unseen earlier and then the four of them really spread out, and it was, you know, T-137A Jack and his uh, sister Tempest, and then Mom with the young one, right, was uh, at least a half a mile, if not more, spread out. And they were just kind of long downtimes, erratic, lots of direction changes. And then you got on scene, and they started hunting again. So you did come in at the best time, but um, it was it's cool to see those shifts in behavior and now have so much time with them that we kind of can recognize what's what's going on. Yeah, and they're you know the more we observe them and the the you know the longer we you know get to see these whales and get to know them better, we start picking up on some of these cues when when a sh- you know all of a sudden the hunt might happen or some strong behavioral shift. Like we've definitely seen when when they all go down for a dive and you don't see them for longer and then in the past, it's like, okay, everybody look every yeah. direction because you have no idea what's about to happen. But you know, yeah. it's, it's very likely it seems like that precedes a hunt a lot of times. Like everyone kind of disappears and then the surface just erupts in, in action. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're kind of moving into some recent sightings here. Um, and we, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, recent sighting with T thirty four A one and the saga. <laughs> this is an unusual one. It uh, is. You know, there's there's never a dull moment with killer whales. There's always something new going on. And this this goes back to uh, last August uh, to last August, and then kind of rehashed the saga this past weekend uh, when we were out with a group of killer whales of Bigs killer whales. Yeah. So. T-34A1, um, 
born in 2019, actually first seen in Monterey Bay. I was just looking at my notes um, about about her. And um, I'm just going to kind of catch us up to like almost a year ago. Um, I was out August 25th with Dave and one of our captains who coincidentally is going to be a guest on one of our next episodes, hopefully the next one. Um, and we saw her, you know, young whale with the family. Uh, she was chasing auklets at that time and like breaching with this poor bird in her mouth and then gave up the bird lived an eagle came in, tried to grab it anyway, long story. But, um, so very active, energetic with her family, August 25th or excuse me, August 22nd, uh, went out on August 26th again and found the family. So T37, T37Bs, T34 and her kids. No T34A1. So, you know, four days later, this little little kid was gone. And I think I messaged you, Monica. I was like, I'm a little concerned. T34A1 is is missing. Two years old at that point, right? Yeah, at that point, you're you're assuming you're assuming the worst at that point. Right, right. Two years old. Um, And I think I reached out to Gary Sutton um, uh, within a couple of days, maybe that day, and and just said, hey, like we encountered this group of whales and. T-34A1, you know, we didn't see her not present. We had a pretty good amount of time with with um, the family. And he was the one that got back and said, yeah, no, we just actually saw her with the T-36Bs and T-36 in Johnstone Strait. Which is like... Which was within a like few, a week or two, a week and a half maybe of when we'd last seen her with the family. Right. And that's that's a spread of a few hundred miles yeah. from, from her yeah, family. a couple hundred miles, yeah. So and that kind of brings us up to this spring and and Monica, you so you picture were your two year old is off with some other family two hundred miles potentially from you. not related like not related that we know of right and so she's been with that family through the winter as far as we know right and we've seen T thirty four A one with the thirty six and thirty six Bs a few times this year yeah, already yeah saw her in September we saw so I saw them again in September the thirty six thirty six Bs thirty four A one was there. Um, and then I think they were seen somewhere else by someone else, uh, last fall. And then yes, now in the spring they showed up and she was still with them. So Jeff, you're making it sound like, uh, there was a calf napping that happened here. Like imagine your, your calf is off with somebody else. I just want to say, what if it was the other way around? Imagine somebody foists their two-year-old onto you and says, here, you deal with her. It, it, it could go that direction too, or it could be the two-year-old saying, Hey, you know what? I like this family more. <laughs> I'm I'm ready for an adventure. I want some siblings, maybe. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, but and the plot thickened a little bit uh, this weekend when we saw the 36s. And when I got there, um, it was it was just the 36. It was 36 and the 36 Bs, but there was no 34A1. With and uh, another captain chimed in, right, saying we have this little whale that they were four miles away from that group. And we have this young whale, probably a couple years old, that they had a really hard time tracking. It sounds like it was, you know, surfacing in different directions, going fast, going slow. They tried to get a photo and couldn't even get a photo of it. Um, But the thought, once we heard the ID of 36 and 36 Bs without T-34A1 there, was like, is this T-34A1 and why is she now four miles apart from the group she's been traveling with? And there was another uh, additional whale in between, in between, in between them. the two groups, yeah. right? So that was thirty-seven A one, who is another female, fifteen-year-old female that has kind of like dispersed from her mom at a pretty young age. A, yeah, but, yeah, yep. Um, and it got weirder, like well, not weirder, but Jeff and I got out that evening, confirmed that it was 
you know, 36B with her three kids and T36 was also there, but no 34A1. And, and, and no, no 37A1, who when I was out there earlier in the day, 37A1 had caught up to the to 36 and the 36Bs and then for about five minutes and then drifted back again. Right. And we got a report from another captain that was on his way back to Victoria that he found two whales together. And he, you know, they, they thought maybe it was one of the 36B kids, but then it was two whales and they were heading west, whereas the rest of the 36s were heading east. So off into the sunset are 37A1 and, and 34A1. Who, to make the story a little bit more interesting, are distant relatives of one another. Uh, Sarah mentioned earlier that, that T-37 and the 37Bs travel with the 34s and they're thought to be related. Um, so that makes T-34A1 and T-37A1 uh, first cousins once removed. So they are in the same <laughs> general family tree, but uh, not direct relatives. And two young kids off roaming together. And and this goes back to what I, I said earlier and, and very different from the Southern residents, the big killer whale social structure and social dynamics and the changes that happen are, are absolutely fascinating. It, it is, because, I mean, with the Southern residents, at least, like, and a lot of my understanding of, of killer whales when I was first learning about them came from what we knew about Southern resident killer whales is, like, of course they never leave their moms. Like, of course they stay in these multi-generational families. And we do see a few bigs families that, you know, are multiple generations. But for the most part, they are dispersing at some point. Um, you know, females disperse when they start having their own kids. And, and we have like the 36As that travel separately from 36 and the 36Bs and that kind of thing. Uh, so it's fascinating to like kind of broaden my understanding of killer whales as we're, we're learning more about Bigs. And the, the ability to track this kind of stuff has just gotten so much better as they spend more time here and people become more familiar with them. Like we, we've never seen something like this before, but it doesn't mean something like this hasn't happened before. Right. You know, you go back 15 years to one of those sightings I was talking about and what you guys witnessed the other day, people would say, oh, I saw seven transient killer whales. <laughs> All right. And, and that's it. But now we know these family relationships. We know these individuals better and we're able to observe these really complex stories unfold. And that to me is just so fascinating. It's one of the things I love about what we do and and that being able to take advantage of the shift out here of seeing Biggs killer whales more. I don't think they've ever been seen this much and ID'd this much where we can actually start documenting and keeping long longer term records of these social associations and uh, uh, behavior patterns and where they're going and who they're going with. It, it's It's really cool. Yeah. So super cool. And the ability to track that is enhanced so much by you guys and, and the reports that you share because, you know, researchers, we try and get out there as much as we can, but you guys, you know, as a, as an industry are out there over a much greater area so much more often and you share these reports and it allows us to piece these stories together over time um, in a way that's so much more detailed than, than if we were just doing it, you know, just ourselves with what we saw. Yeah. And I think over time we're going to be able to start tracking uh, what's going on with them from California all the way up to Alaska and through the in, entire whale watch community off the, the West Coast. And no single entity could ever get this kind of data over that period of time. It's it's really incredible. I'm looking forward to getting more sightings off the Oregon coast. I think there's something going on off there. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we don't have a lot of eyes there. Right? There's, there's... Let's go. <laughs> 
we get there's a lot of sightings in California, right? And yeah. there's sort of that gap between here and there where not as much is reported. We know they're there. Right. Yeah. Well, um kind of getting into the fun stuff. We talked about the research, talked about Obi. Let's talk about you a little bit. And I know favorite topic, but we'll keep it whale focused. So um how'd you get hooked on whales, Monica? It was it was love at first sight. You know, I had a fascination with with all animals, but especially whales and dolphins from from a super young age. But um, really seeing killer whales in the wild for the first time was the point of no return for me. You know, I was 12 years old. It was in Alaska and it's been sort of the central focus of my life ever since that trip was I came home from that trip and said, hey, mom and dad, is there anywhere closer to home, you know, growing up in Oregon that we can see orcas and that's when we learned about the San Juan Islands and the Southern residents and uh, the rest is history from there but there's you know there's something about them that you know nobody can really describe the magnetism and the charisma that they have that sets them apart from you know so many other animals that we observe but there is that uniqueness to orcas that they're simultaneously you know so similar and so different from us um, that just keeps us coming back for more. I'm sure you guys can relate. Absolutely. Yep. So everybody that, that comes on the podcast has to answer this question, <laughs> uh, in, including Sarah and I. We talked about this last week. But uh, one of your all-time favorite encounters. Oh, it's I know. <laughs> so I know it's hard. hard. It's That's hard. putting me on the spot here. <laughs> we we yeah. talked about this last week, how you know you have a list in your head and your favorite always changes depending on how you're feeling and and what you've been thinking about lately so yeah. you don't have to pick out the the the, the one right well it's like it's like when people ask me what my favorite whale is right it's influenced by who i saw last week like oh the t137s are my favorite transients but i just saw them last night j41 feels very betrayed <laughs> that's why i specified favorite transients you'll notice um but my i mean probably my most memorable encounter comes back to j41 because it was the time that i uh first saw her when she was just a couple of days old in 2005 and um you know we we knew that she had been born you know within the last day or two she was uh, you know got the report i was at this time you know doing research out at out at lime kiln on the west side of san juan island and we had heard about her you know the day before um over in rosario rate straight with her mom uh j19 and uh just Back then, you could almost set your watch by the Southern residents, right? Right. They had a circuit that they would do, and you knew it was going to be about 24 hours from, you know, from the Fraser River to the west side of San Juan Island or whatever it was. And so playing that hunch, um, you know, I was a teenager at the time, but it was like I got up super early regardless. I went out to Lime Kiln. It was a beautiful morning with the calm sunset and, uh, sorry, sunrise, and just hoped and sure enough, you know, J-Pod came up uh, the west side early that morning. It was a beautiful, you know, glassy blue seas. Um, at that point, it was, you know, J-1 and J-2 in the lead, followed by by J-8. And then the, the J-19s with a uh, new little J-41 in tow. And just, you know, she was the probably the youngest killer whale I've ever seen. Still had the, the fetal folds and everything. And... Um, the combination of, of seeing her at such a young age and just the beauty of the scene with the, the perfect viewing conditions, the perfect lighting. That's just one of those classic Southern resident passbys on the West side that always stands out in my mind. Yeah. I think we all like have that moment where we've seen the youngest killer whale we've ever seen before. Like, and, and I know for me at least like that moment sticks in my mind. And Jeff, I think you, 
um, had a similar, not, not like that, but you, you saw J 53 when she was yeah. not even like discovered yet. Right. That, that's right. That was, uh, off of, uh, on one of our tours off of snug Harbor, uh, back in 2015, like in October, October. Uh, it was, and it, it was, it was funny because we had a passenger on board who was there for the day from Salt Lake city. And came out to see J-Pod. And we hadn't seen them in, in like two or three weeks. And we were like, this is not the right time of year to be coming out here to see J-Pod, especially for a, on a one-day trip. And uh, we pulled out of the harbor, and J-Pod was sitting <laughs> right outside of the harbor. And uh, yeah, brand new J-53. Nice, nice. Who was your youngest whale, Sarah? Probably J-59. Oh, yeah. You know, I... Yeah, I'm having trouble remembering, but I think probably J59. Well, you were the first one to see J59, so that one's going to stick in your memory. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, because it, it had to be within a week, right? That's kind of what we were looking at. Like, yeah, it was within four or five days okay, of so, birth. Yeah, um, yeah, there might have been like a T that I've seen that was younger, but J59 is like one of the most that sticks out for me. L123 as well, like down in Puget Sound, viewing from shore. Not ideal conditions, um, but, you know, we had L's and K's down there in the fall in 2015, and um, we knew that L91 had had a calf already, L122, and I do remember standing there, and it was, like, windy and uh, crazy, and I had just made the run uh, to Vashon to try to get them at Point Robinson. Oh, and yes, then, I know that run. And then they turned around right before they got to the point, <laughs> so I ran back to the ferry, like, got on the ferry and tried to catch them from, you know, West Seattle, and, and did it. And I was standing on the beach and I remember I was standing with a couple of friends and I was like, I think there's a second calf in there. And that one, that it was cool. Like I went through my photos and very obviously had L122 and then a different calf in, in the group. And that was really cool too. But um, it took uh, four or five weeks before Center verified. So I had to sit on the news for <laughs> like five weeks, but it was great. So we, we'd love to hear other people's favorite encounters and youngest whales. So you can yeah. always get in touch with us. Uh, we're on Instagram at After the Breach. You can email us at afterthebreachpodcast at gmail.com and get to our website at afterthebreachpodcast.com. Yeah, and we'll link all of these cool things we've talked about over our episode today. Monica, I know you have a beautiful photo of J19 and J41 from that uh, encounter you mentioned. Do you mind sharing that with us? We I'd be happy to, yes. Sweet. Uh, Put you, it on the... you know the one from my description. I know the one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've, I've got one of J53 from, from sweet. that day. So we will we'll post those in the show notes. But yeah, definitely get in touch with us. We'll post on um, Instagram and we'd love to hear your encounters as well. So definitely reach out to us. Uh, our next episode will air May 27th. Uh, we're hoping that a friend of ours, Dave and Hafey, will, will join us for that uh, to be confirmed. But we'll have something great for you regardless. And thanks for joining us, guys, on After the Breach. Monica, thanks for being our first yeah, thank you, Monica. guest on the on the podcast. Yeah, if, it was an honor. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And if you guys are enjoying listening to these, uh, share them with your friends. Follow us. Leave us a review. Yeah, Get in touch it. with us. We, we'd love to hear from you. Yep. And we'll have Monica back again soon because we love chatting with Monica too. <laughs> Happy to be back. Excellent. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>